You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. In this bonus episode, we continue our Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month conversation with a question. What if ovarian cancer doesn't actually start in the ovaries? If what we think of as ovarian cancer gets its start in the fallopian tubes, does that change detection, prevention, and treatment strategies? I talked to Dr. Diane Yamada from the University of Chicago to learn more. So I want to thank Dr. Diane Yamada from the University of Chicago for taking a little time after her special presentation to the department to sit down with the Women's Health Cast. It's really wonderful to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Uh, So you're the Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Chicago. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you do there clinically and academically and if you have a research focus. Um, So I run the section there, and I have uh, six wonderful faculty. Um, So I oversee, you know, the clinical um, workings of the department, of the section, um, and our fellowship program as well. I work with the fellows a fair amount. Um, I do some of everything. So in terms of um, administration, I kind of oversee um, the happenings in the section. I'm definitely clinically active, so I do a fair amount of surgery. Most of the surgery that I do um, and a lot of the patients that we see are fairly complex. So there is a lot of um, uh, ovarian cancer debulking surgery, um, a lot of robotic surgery, including some complex robotic surgery for uh, patients with endometrial cancer, recurrent cancers, um, and then um, some complex vulvar cancer cases uh, that are performed in a multidisciplinary fashion with um, extensive plastic surgery. From a research standpoint, um, I think I'm uniquely um, positioned in, and have the tremendous advantage of being surrounded by incredibly bright people um, that have translational labs um, specifically focused on ovarian cancer. For instance, Ernst Lingel um, is, um, runs our ovarian cancer uh, translational lab. Uh, we interface with a lot of the medical oncologists that are um, starting you know, phase one and phase two um, trials. Uh, we have a tremendous... Um, CAR-T therapy group and adaptive T-cell immunotherapy group um, that's very active. And so uh, we're starting to look at ways to kind of launch um, novel immunotherapy techniques and um, adaptive T-cell therapy into solid tumors, which may include ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, my research interest is in, and our group's interest is in finding a way to eradicate ovarian cancer. <laughs> You just presented a special lecture to our uh, UW Department of OBGYN. It was called, Now That We Know Ovarian Cancer Comes from the Fallopian Tubes, dot, dot, dot. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what you covered in your presentation? Sure. Um, So the things that I really wanted to highlight in the presentation were the fact that uh, that there's been a paradigm shift in how we think of, of ovarian cancer. We've always thought of ovarian cancer as arising from the ovary specifically, um, but we've come to realize largely as a result of finding that there are genetic mutation carriers that are that are predisposed to getting quote unquote ovarian cancer that uh, some of what we thought was ovarian cancer is really starting in the fallopian tubes. So I really wanted to cover how, wh- what, what does that mean to the patient um, in terms of 
trying to find these cancers early, um, in terms of trying to um, prevent the development of those cancers. And then I also wanted to highlight the fact that um, some of the research from, from our group has shown that uh, even though we think of a large percentage of some of these cancers is starting in the fallopian tubes, they don't always arise in the fallopian tubes. They may start in um, other areas, uh, for instance, in um, the omentum, um, which is a fatty curtain of tissue that sits over the intestines. Uh, and, and from that area, it may spread to the fallopian tubes. So it really is... Um, ovarian cancer is doesn't necessarily always start in the ovarian and the ovaries but it doesn't always necessarily start in the fallopian tubes either so it is a it's a um, it's a conglomerate of different cancers that we need to try and understand better is this a, a newer discovery or a newer way of thinking I think that we there's always been the hint that there may be this multifocal phase effect um, mainly because you know people who are at genetic risk for undergoing for having for developing ovarian cancer um, even though they've undergone um, a surgical removal of their tubes and ovaries they have and it's a very small percentage very very small percentage but um, but some of those patients can develop what's called a peritoneal cancer later and I think that we've always thought that perhaps we just missed it initially and maybe the cancer was there and then started to grow um, but based on um, some of the work that we've done in other studies that have shown that there was nothing there originally, um, it does raise the question of whether um, these cancers are arising someplace else. So there have been hints of it before, but nothing I think that's been studied as rigorously as recently. You uh, mentioned genetic predisposition. Um, does that include uh, BRCA mutations? Yes, it most definitely um, includes people who have, in, have inherited a BRCA mutation, but it also includes um, other genes as well uh, that have been discovered in, in more recent years. And I think that's going to continue to evolve as well as we understand more uh, and learn more about, these, about this disease process. So I know in your presentation and then um, even just a moment ago, you mentioned um, the implications that this knowledge has for uh, lots of aspects of treatment from detection to treatment to prophylactic treatment. So what does it mean for, um, I guess, what does it mean for detection? Let's start at the beginning part. Uh, how does knowing that ovarian cancer might not always actually originate in the ovaries uh, affect the way we start to look for it? Right. So I think um, there have been some wonderful studies that have been done um, large screening studies that have been very rigorously done looking at the use of ultrasound or the CM125 blood test, um, looking for an increase in the, the um, level of CM125 to try and detect these cancers early. Ultrasound is going to rely on an increase in size of, of the ovary, for instance, if you're going to try and detect these cancers early based upon solely on, on our standard imaging. Um, and those studies have not shown a decrease in mortality. Um, they occasionally find earlier cancers, but not necessarily a decrease in mortality. And that's what you're really hoping for with a screening test, is that you're going to ultimately be able to improve um, people's survival. Um, so I think it begs the question of, of with um, some sort of imaging technique, um, if the, if the uh, earliest 
form of cancer is arising in a very, very small portion of the fallopian tube, how is that going to be detected? Um, looking for a differential in size or something like that. Uh, so I think that there are a number of groups that are looking at different ways to image um, the ovaries, not just relying on size, but perhaps differences in vascularity, um, uh, differences in uh, the way a portion of the ovary or the anexa may look based upon contrast agents, things like that. There are some really novel things being done. Um, but I think that um, other groups are also looking for um, biomarkers that could be expressed. Uh, is there a biomarker profile um, that happens early on that would be shed in, you know, circulating tumor cells in some form of, some part of the bloodstream that could then be picked up? Um, and that's an area that is, you know, ripe for, for, for study um, if we hope to make an impact. So that's the impact on, um, potentially on screening. Um, from a prevention standpoint, um, the most straightforward way to, to reduce the risk of the cancer developing is to prophylactically or preemptively remove that area. Um, if all the cancers were arising from the fallopian tube, that would be fairly straightforward. You would just remove the fallopian tube in every patient. Um, uh, we've typically removed the ovaries and tubes because of thought that a fair percentage of these were arising from the ovaries as well. That has obvious implications for putting people into the menopause early. And there's some data showing that uh, the ovaries continue to make other hormones that may be beneficial for cardiovascular disease and things like that, even up to the age of, of 60, a little bit over 60. So really nailing down where the cancer starts from allows you to, to perform the most pointed prophylactic surgery that you can. And if the data is coming out that, that some of these cancers are arising from the omentum, which is that fatty curtain of tissue, or someplace in the lining of the abdominal cavity, that's a whole different prevention surgical aspect that we need to be looking at and thinking about. It doesn't seem as clear-cut as being able to it, say, okay, fallopian tubes and ovaries, we can take those. But yeah, what do you do if it has more um, unclear abdominal origins. Absolutely. It's, yeah. a, big, it's a big question. I wanna... But I just want to say that I think that you know, the data is um, clear, particularly in those people that are high risk for the development of cancer, that taking out the tubes and ovaries are going to decrease that ovarian cancer risk by 80%. And that is the best, you know, that is, that is, the best risk reduction that we have so far. It's not 100%, but it's far, far better than, than other modalities that we have. I wanted to ask a couple more questions about the risk reduction surgeries, because you shared some data in your presentation um, that I thought was really interesting and I hadn't really learned about before, that uh, depending on at least with what type of BRCA mutation you're presenting with, um, you might have that prophylactic surgery at a different age. Correct. Um, so the rationale behind that is uh, that, you know, for BRCA1 mutation carriers, um, because the onset of cancer can be earlier, um, you know, 40, 50 or so, 50 it starts to really go up, um, that you should be doing the prophylactic removal of the tubes and ovaries at age 35 to 40. And for BRCA2 mutation carriers, uh, that surgery should be taking place at 40 to 45. So that obviously puts people into the menopause earlier, and that has effects. 
uh, in terms of um, hot flashes, vaginal dryness, sexual function, um, and you know, there are concerns about increased risk of cardiovascular disease and things like that. Um, so instead of um, going on hormone replacement therapy, which some patients have concerns about, um, is there the opportunity to take out just the tube if the tube may be the source of uh, a good number of these potential future cancers? And so that's the area that's being studied um, by a number of different groups. Um, with the theory being that you can undergo the salpingectomy, removal of the tube at an earlier age, and then at a later age, have the ovaries removed. Um, and I, the, the data is being accumulated. Um, ultimately, it, what we want to do is, is prevent the development of cancer and decrease the risk of mortality. Um, the numbers of patients that go on these trials is probably going to be small enough that it's going to be hard to look at that um, in very, very large numbers initially. So, um, but it is, it is a very practical uh, form of, of risk reduction that should be at least discussed with patients. I was sort of curious as you were talking about that, um, doing the salpingectomy first, the tubes out first, and then following up later with ovaries. Um, and I know that all of the studies that you mentioned, I think, are still going, and there's, you know, we're still waiting to see how they go. But I would imagine there'd have to be an extra level of maybe surveillance or, um, you know, keeping an eye on if they, if they're leaving the ovaries, which has its own benefits for um, not disrupting like the hormones that they produce. But you definitely want to keep an eye on them to make sure that cancer doesn't start there. And I guess I'm wondering about that balance or looking forward as you're seeing these studies go on, if you have any thoughts about the balance there. Yeah, I think it's a really, it's, it's a really good question because I think that we, um, you know, an area that we don't talk about very much is like the anxiety that it causes for patients. Um, I have patients who are long-term survivors of ovarian cancer and the only and they say you know my life is is great now the only time that I really lose sleep and I get really anxious is when I think about those two days before I'm coming in to see you that I get my CM125 blood test or I know that I'm going to be going through an exam it is definitely anxiety provoking um, so I I think every group and I think this in the question and answer period today it, it it definitely came up that that I don't think that there is one set way that that these patients are undergoing surveillance um, I think that that uh, what we generally talk about is doing exams on patients touching base with the patient to make sure that they're not having any symptoms of recurrent cancer that we could pick up earlier. Um, bloating, pain that they can't explain, things like that. Um, I will tend to do a CA-125 test on these patients, you know, even if they've um, gone through risk-reducing surgery. Um, uh, that's what's been done in some of the follow-up studies. Um, but understanding that, you know, for that patient who says, listen, this is just way too anxiety-provoking for me, unless you can tell me that this is for sure going to help me, um, I want to, I would rather just come in to see you or come in to see a practitioner um, and not undergo that. I think that that is reasonable. So what happens next? 
Now that um, we kind of have this sense that not all ovarian cancer is originating in the ovaries, um, and there's research ongoing, but what what do we do now? Well, it's a really it's a really good question. I mean, I think that the the beauty of being surrounded by really smart people who are you know looking at this on the molecular level and um, and you know clinicians and surgeons who are operating on these people is that there's a lot of crosstalk that goes on um, between um, the lab, the operating room. Um, and being able to kind of generate some of the pointed questions that can then be addressed um, from a research standpoint. So um, I think that, you know, we, the different groups, I would imagine, are going to start to kind of delve into whether there are driver mutations that occur that may be specific to areas that are outside the fallopian tube that may, um, uh, um, that could be initiating agents. Um, and And certainly, you know, what are, what are potentially the interacting factors that can occur at that fallopian tube interface um, that could be potentially be blocked? You know, it, it raises a whole um, um, area of opportunity to kind of look at those interactions that may occur and those driver mutations and um, and uh, interactions between different proteins that can occur um, to then create an intervention. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for the wonderful lecture. Thank you very much for having me. It was wonderful to be here. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISC-OBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.